You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Maz, Neil and Pete, where we look back on some of our favourite football sides from the Premier League era. Each week we'll be digging into the archives to look at some of the most memorable teams in both English and world football. We'll have the greats, the overachievers, the heroic near misses and the catastrophic failures to have graced the game over the last 30 years. So what are you waiting for? Turn your collar up like King Eric, grab your replica Mitre Ultimax, relive your youth and let's go with Four at the Back. Welcome back. It's episode eight of Four at the Back. We are looking at AC Milan and the dominating side from the early nineties. In preparation for this uh, for this podcast, I, I think well, Neil and Maz went a bit uh, went a bit do lally. I think we were originally going to talk about another team, but there was too much of a crossover with the Brazilian side. Uh, and given that we've talked, we've spoken about Brazil and Newcastle recently. We thought that's there's too many goals there, so we're going to talk about some good defenders. The whole point of this Milan team is it isn't a typical Italian team. Like they just so happen to have um, the world's best back four, but they were under Saki um, between '87 and '91 the the most attacking team, um, not just in Serie A but but probably in Europe as well. I mean they they defended um, with this incredibly high line um they Saki basically invented the modern pressing football that likes of Jurgen Klopp and Julian Nagelsmann um and Thomas Tuchel and uh Marco Rosa yes to play to this day um and they basically took the Ajax total football template um from the late 70s and they and they sort of uh I guess they Italianized it and and they suffocated teams really because they were just pressing so far up. You know, there was only ever under Saki's system ten to fifteen meters between each line of his four four two. And four four two itself is like the least Italian of all systems as well. So they were something very very different, and they obviously just so happened to have um, spent money on you know three brilliant Dutch footballers um, who, you know, added their own stamp to the excellent Italian players that they already had. It's it's, it's a really interesting story, the whole Starkey era, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's an absolute embarrassment of talent that, that, that's in there. You know, when you, when you look at the defenders, I mean, you talk about the back four, you talk about probably two of the five greatest defenders of all time. I'd argue two of the three greatest defenders of all time, um, you know, as diehard Milan guys coming through at that time, you know, one already established, one coming through in the later 80s in Baresi and Maldini. But, you know, in guys like Costa Curta, Tassotti, mm. Panucci a bit later on, Galli, you've got some of... You you know it's it's not just two. You, you've got a great unit of a defence led by Baresi uh, first and foremost, but you, you've got so many good parts to it. 
it's it's there but then you know you've got a midfield before you even get to the dutch boys of just strong solid midfielders who back them up who defend from the front like 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 uh neil saying with the pressing that's essentially what they're doing you know they're, they're, they're defending as, as as soon as the opposing keeper's got the ball Shall we fill in some of the history before we let you guys kind of fill your boots with uh, reminiscing about the the players of the great era? Because the one of the amazing things about this Milan team is is there's nothing inevitable about the success. They're, they're one of those sides that you kind of think of as being big forever, um, and it's not really true in some senses. This is a Milan that had fallen on hard times after the 1960s. Yeah, they uh, hadn't they, won it for 20 years, Syria. The point where Sarki took over. Uh, once in 20 years, but they'd mm. immediately, after one in the late 70s, got relegated from involvement in a match-fixing scandal, which is, as always, the bane of Italian football, uh, these links with organised crime. So they'd, been, they'd actually bounced around between Serie A and Serie B through most of the early 1980s. Uh, not really the glamour team that we think of them as today. They were probably behind Inter in terms of the, well, certainly in terms of Scudetto's one, and way behind Juventus, who are the, the, the Man United of Italian football. Uh, so this team that emerges in really with the, the, the purchase of the club by Silvio Berlusconi changes Milan to the point where they are probably, they get back to being the number two team in Italy, and they dominate for quite a long period, uh, in Europe as well. And it changes the entire course to the point where we now think of them as probably bigger than Inter. They certainly have a, a wider global profile and it puts them back at the forefront of European football. I mean, of course, the uh, Milan have fallen on hard times again in the past, I mean, the past, te- yeah, past 10 years particularly. Um, you know, they kind of have this era under Saki and Capello and then they have the Ancelotti era and post the Ancelotti era things you know, haven't gone very well for them um, at all. So it is, it's one of those things that for people of of our generation, you know, Milan are, uh, you know, one of the, the sort of the great names of European football, but to anybody who has only started following football within the last sort of, you know, 10 years or so, it the, the, the narrative of Serie A is very much uh, Juve win it every year. And, you know, the idea that actually, you know, Juve had their own hard times um, while this Milan team and while Maradona's Napoli um, were, were the two teams really most of the time vying for the Serie A title, um, you know, it must seem quite strange to somebody that that's a bit younger. But um, you know, the thing is with Berlusconi is he took a massive risk in a in appointing Saki because, of course, you know, um, as as we kind of talked about with Mourinho, um, the idea of, of football managers without a significant playing career is still something which until relatively recently was really, really looked down upon. And Saki was especially um, in Italy, especially so. And Saki's famous quote was, of course, that uh, he didn't know you had to be uh, a horse first to be a jockey. Um, and he, you know, he kind of had a, a career in um, Italian non-league football, um, was a defender, um, was obsessed with the sort of minutiae of the game of, of particularly watching um, Ajax and um, the Dutch national team of, of Renus Michels and he went into coaching and he um, had you know some teams in in the non-leagues and then through Serie C and Serie B finally gets to, to Parma and then he goes on to uh, to Milan and it's it's really interesting because he 
um, institutes this system, which is we talked about so alien to Italian football. And he demanded very specific players to make it work. Um, you know, nobody wanted to take a chance on Carlo Ancelotti because he had a very, very serious knee injury. I mean, Ancelotti was the darling of Italian football as a young player, um, got a very bad knee injury. And Saki insisted that you had to have Ancelotti because Ancelotti was going to be key to the way that his game worked. He needed, you know, he needed Hullet and, and right car because they're sort of tactical versatility. You know, both of them could play anywhere on a football pitch. Um, and of course, you know, um, you know, Van Basten was was just a, a serial goal scorer. And bear in mind that the top scorer in Serie A at that time quite often was someone that scored 12 or 13 goals. And Van Basten regularly hit 19 or 20, which for a league with the best defensive talent in the world was, you know, was incredible. So, you know, he really did revolutionise not just Italian football, but he actually revolutionised world football because, as we talked about, you can't watch Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool um, without knowing that the German coaches of Klopp's era all basically got their style from Saki. I mean, you 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 talked about the, some of the reasons why Milan were were so dominant at this time, and um, we've talked in in the over the course of the last couple of weeks about teams who have, I suppose, redefined the way that um, that teams play in the league, and, and it causes the whole the whole the whole league to shift or in some cases it, it causes the entire football to shift we think about Chelsea in 2004 we think about Manchester United in 1993 here we're saying that th- th- there was a, a new type of a, a, basically a new tactic had been a, had been adopted and it took some time for the other teams to to sort of catch up and and to adapt to it is that part of the reason why they was they they just kept running away with the title, or whether there was only sort of Napoli able to keep up with them? Yeah, they. I think I think the thing with them was is that they yeah they did just they completely um, they completely suffocated teams. I mean, if you look at their European um, cups, um, you know the first one um, well not the first one they've won, but but in nineteen eighty nine that one. Um, they absolutely smash uh, Stal Bucharest 4-0 um, and then the next year they defend it and they beat Benfica. You know, Saki noticed that uh, the two centre-backs were staying very close together and pressing uh, pressing high up on Van Basten. So he told Van Basten to actually go sort of into a, into a kind of false nine into the midfield and let right card run past him. And that's how they scored the winning goal with that sort of tactical adjustment on the fly from Saki. So it wasn't even just that um, they had a style that was very difficult for other teams to adapt to. It was the fact that Saki actually made a lot of a lot of uh, changes within the game itself. And for a while, he was just the man with the golden touch and and nothing could go wrong. And I mean, as is usual with football managers, um, uh, uh, you know, eventually... Um, uh, things go wrong for him because because you know he goes to the Italian national team with the expectation of the Italian media um and players that are not from Milan um find it difficult to deal with him because he's quite a um tempestuous individual shall we say and so you know famously um him and uh, and Roberto Baggio who was Italy's you know greatest player at the time who was a Juventus player, um, they just couldn't get along uh, at all. And Saki didn't trust him and didn't think that Baggio would press enough. 
um, which is what he demanded in his football. So, um, you know, it's 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 a really um, interesting tale, um, Saki. It's it's very much like tons of success, and then he goes to Italy, and you know, it's almost like he did Mourinho's career, but sort of you know about five or ten years quicker. Like the whole point of of where things start self-destructing, um, Saki gets there a lot quicker. Yeah, I mean, you know, it helps with. Well, I was just going to touch on that. Um, that you know, they, they've got. He he had the players. He had such versatile players. You you've got a guy like Baresi who is you know a, a centre back in every sense of the word. Yet at, at the same time, he can, he can play as a sweeper. He can he can run forward. You know, he he's got that ability. You've got Maldini who can play anywhere across the back and you know he can bomb forward when he's a, a fullback you, you've got Rijkaard who can sit who can go forward who can play anywhere across that midfield I mean Hullet is you know probably the most versatile player ever to play the game you know he, he could literally play anywhere and be the best player on the pitch doing it yeah he I mean, played centre forwards he played here yeah. isn't there because you've got on the one hand the back four was effectively in place by the time Saki arrives. Uh, Barese's been there since the late 70s. Um, the two Barese brothers were coming through at the same time and Inter opted to take the other Barese brother. Uh, I want to say Giuseppe Barese. And so the um, the Milan derby for the next few years then is, the, the defining image of it is the two Barese brothers, one leading each team. Um, and then... Maldini comes to the youth system. They have uh, Tassotti in place while they're coming back up from Serie B. So three out of the four are there before Berlusconi ever takes over the team. And then it's it's the Berlusconi money then that goes and makes all those other signings happen. You know, he's actually signed Van Basten before Saki's ever in place. Uh, there's this story of a secret meeting at one of Berlusconi's houses um, that takes place. And it's like, you'll come in in a year's time for what was a, a knockdown fee. Then he goes out and, um, and and lures Rude Hullet to the side. And a year or so later, the Rijkaard comes in. So on the one hand, you've got almost the good fortune, I guess, in the of the pre-Berlusconi-Saki era to unearth some of the best defenders that would ever play for the club and, and the last one is Costa Curta who again was in the youth system by that point and then the I suppose it's it's another story of investment where the Berlusconi puts his millions up and they go away and lure that that Dutch trio and some of these other players that come in in the Saki era so you've got a real double pronged thing and I suppose the question is could they have got away with it if they hadn't had the good fortune to have you know all those Milan youth players who turned out to be great defenders it's a bit like it's a bit like the arsenal thing isn't it you know wenger arrived found a you know a, a great back four and added a couple of uh of foreign additions and, and 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 that was the the sort of the basis of that first great side that he had i think you know most great sides it, it does feature that that mix of homegrown talent and then a couple of exotic signings i mean we talked about Mourinho. he 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 found Terry and Lampard already there. Um, uh, Ferguson, you know, when he, um, you know, went to Old Trafford, you know, Brian Robson was already there. Um, so so you know you, you you kind of have those 
those foundational pieces i suppose and you know certainly one of the reasons why saki maybe wasn't as successful um after he left milan was that um you know and and, and you'll see this with liverpool and van dyke now actually is that you, you, it's so it's so difficult to play that higher line with that kind of precision over a whole season you know you need to have really really good defenders that read the game expertly and Baresi is the greatest reader of the game I think that I've seen I mean obviously I, I was too young to see Beckenbauer and anything except highlights but you know Baresi just saw the play about 10 steps ahead of anybody else and if you watch any of his highlights you'll see him you know step out of line he'll be like you know he'll be in midfield basically just intercepting things before anybody thought there'd be a central defender there it's it's absolutely incredible to watch and of course the rest of the back four push up with him and he organized that um and you see it in uh, the 94 World Cup final, by by which time Baresi is very much a veteran. Um, and he has an unbelievable game, like puts Romario in his pocket and, and runs around with him, with Romario sticking out of his pocket for 120 minutes. Um, two he, two he, weeks he, after knee surgery. I mean, he was an incredible player. Two yeah. weeks after knee surgery, he plays that game and puts the best striker in the world in his pocket for 120 minutes. He was some he, some footballer, and he was well compensated for it. Um, not for not for playing for Italy exactly, but uh, at Milan, the salaries during that that great run were off the charts by the standards of modern football. Uh, we often think of defenders as and, and goalkeepers as being underappreciated positions, but Baresi was out earning the best strikers in England, probably by about a, a, a factor of two to one in the late 19... Well, and, and five years ahead of them. You know, he was earning in the late 1980s what the best Premier League strikers in the first two or three years of the league, well, twice what they would earn. Um, this, so, this and that just the- shows how much, the, how much of a value they placed on Baresi. But this is where all the best players are at, the, at this yeah, point exactly. in time, isn't it? This, this is, I mean, you know, we talk about now the the Premier League being probably the the, the elite league in the, in the world, alongside, uh, well, it used to be La Liga. I'm not sure it is anymore. Um, but this is where all the the greatest players are, and particularly Milan and Juve and Inter. They all this is where they come to play. So it's no real surprise that financially they're being they're being compensated that like that. I mean, this is the interesting so thing. It's is, 1980 is... that that turns around, just to, to quickly fit that in, because after they got knocked out of that famous game in 66, uh, the Italians did a very... You know that way that in England we often say there's too many foreign players in the Premier League and no one can get a game? Well, the Italians had the exact same reaction mm. in 66 mm. after North Korea, and they locked down foreign players coming in until 1980 when you see this great wave of players going over like uh, Ray Wilkins and Mark Haightley and Gordon Cowens and uh, Liam Brady, I think is probably the most mm-hmm. famous. But um, even then there's, there's a limit of, is it, is it two at this stage? It becomes two and it comes three, three when right card three, joins. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's interesting as well because it's, it's obviously win the world cup in 1982. Um, uh, and, you know, funny enough, uh, you know, Paolo Rossi, who was their top scorer in that tournament, um, was uh, uh, banned uh, for two years for match fixing himself when he was playing for Juventus. So it was, um, uh, as always, a, a sort of a colourful, a colourful time. But um, 
you know, what you, you get some of those famous players from the 82 Brazil team um, turn out in Syria, like uh, Falcao plays for Roma, um, Zico plays for Udinese. Um, so you, so they, you know, you've got some of those in there. Um, Maradona obviously goes from Barcelona to Napoli um, in, I think, 87 or maybe 88. Uh, and, you know, you know, one of the, the, I think Maradona's great achievements is that he took a, a pretty average Napoli side, um, which is basically him, Careca and sort of nine guys. And, um, you know, they win a Scudetto, which is pretty, uh, pretty incredible, really. But I mean, Napoli themselves, like they, the money they were spending on Maradona was, you know, basically mob money. There's a famous story about how, um, <laughs> about how basically uh, they, they almost didn't get Maradona's registration through in time. And uh, basically some gentleman from uh, Sicily uh, arranged it for it to go through. <laughs> yeah, there, so, are, there are so many Maradona stories. <laughs> uh, just to, not to, to, wasn't he already a Napoli player by the time of the 86 heroics? I thought he left Barcelona oh, he might, basically, basically yeah. under a cloud years earlier. I'm trying to think like whether it was, I mean, I, I, I could just look it up, but um, it was, he was at Barcelona, certainly, I think still in, in like 85, but yeah, he might have gone to Napoli not long after that. I mean, I, as I recall, he's basically considered a disaster in Barcelona because he refused to fit into the system and do all the things that Barcelona players are meant to do. Whereas Napoli are a team starved of success and are used to being looked down on by the big three in Northern Italy, which is this very Northern Southern Italy town social yeah. cults about it and that means yeah, that 84 went to napoli that's right and that means yeah. napoli just embrace him in a way that a team like barcelona or real madrid or juventus or ac milan would never have done yeah i mean i think that's the thing is that napoli like argentina actually i mean because the 86 argentina world cup winning team essentially was just you know 10 people behind the ball and um and and let Maradona run with it um well Burichaga was very good as well but it was a very it was very much a team built around Maradona and, and Napoli again built themselves around Maradona um but yeah I think I think you know Serie A of of the you know of the sort of early 80s through the late 90s was was I mean, really, was just just incredible in terms of the quality. And not only did you have all those amazing defenders, you know, most teams had amazing defenders in that time. And then you had these all of these sort of, um, you know, big foreign stars in uh, in attacking positions as well. And and you just sort of see so not all of them are successful. You know, like Ian Rush at Juventus isn't particularly successful um, because it was just a very different, you know, a very different league and it sort of even as a um a free scoring striker it was considered a success to score 10 goals in that league <laughs> because it was it was it was that difficult to uh to, to beat some of the defenses because Mate, um, there's know, a lesson isn't there if you if you wear black and white don't sign ian rush <laughs> yeah true that <laughs> But there's three moments really in the 1980s that make um, Serie A box office. Uh, it's the signing of Maradona. As evil as he is, he, he is box office, regardless of what else he's done in the game or what else you think of him. Box office. The signing of Michel Platini by Juventus. Whatever else you think of him, whatever else he's done in the game, he's absolute box office. And the third is the complete revolution that happens at AC Milan, where they become the dominant club team in Europe. Um 
and they just this is why everyone was glued to the telly it wasn't just the fact that paul gascoigne signed for for lazio there is a reason that we would watch and three or four million people would watch games that had no english interest on channel four in the 1990s this was the the great league in the world i mean it was i mean mean, just to i mean briefly touch on that um because obviously the milan the Milan we're talking about, I guess we sort of, we sort of see two years of that actually on, on Channel Four between '92 and '94. But I think you know the thing, what, think the genius thing about what Channel Four did there was the fact that Sky had obviously stuck English football behind a paywall, and you know, um, I mean, millions of people, including you know a young me, didn't have access to, to, to live Premier League football at all. And so you know, I, I watched two Serie A games every Sunday for most of the 90s um, yeah similar just for the, just i'm not going to uh, say too much just want to say similar i didn't have access to the premier league until 1995 so for a year or two before that you have the only football i see is Serie A and the fa cup final and so it was a, it was a sort of um incredible experience to see that kind of that milan side in its later stages under Capello so I mean I suppose we should probably uh move into the Capello era a little bit and and Ooh, sort of just, go on sorry just be, just, bef- just before we do I just want to throw out another couple of names who join even before Saki but go on to be big names and get some thoughts um Daniel Massaro Albergo Alberigo Ivani and Roberto Donadoni are all um veterans of the side by the time Capello comes in they're, they're well, all there pre-Saki well Massaro only really becomes a player under Capello. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't play very much for for Saki. Um, he's considered, you know, I mean, the, the great story about Massaro is the fact that he is the star of the European Cup win in '94, um, and he was basically a journeyman. You know, he was he was a you know a bench guy for for all of that time. You know, always the bridesmaid, and then. You know, because of of Van Basten being injured and Jean-Pierre Papin not really working out, um, he becomes, you know, Milan's starting centre forwards in the Champions League final and scores two goals and is and, it, and is generally brilliant. Um, so that's a a great story. But you often get these Cinderella stories with Italian strikers. You know, you know, Ravanelli was in his mid to late twenties when he suddenly hit that massive vein of goal scoring form at Juventus so you you do sometimes see it because there was such competition that you could be a really good player and not get a game mm. Massaro in at international level is mainly a pub quiz question isn't he who was the third man to miss a penalty in 94 in the final uh other than Baresi and Baggio um that's usually what he kind of gets reduced to in the popular imagination I, I have much stronger memories Certainly of Donadoni uh, and Avani than I do of Massaro. Um, Donadoni in particular seems to be a, a major player through through all of the late 80s right up Absolutely. to 94. And he's very good in the 1990 World Cup as well. Like that 90 World Cup team, um, which went to the semi-finals at their home World Cup, um, you know, Donadoni and Ancelotti were, you know, particularly um, influential in that team. Um, and I think... You know, I think the the thing about Donadoni was he was just so reliable. Like, you know, he he never ever had a bad game, um, and he just would you know run up and down for for, for ninety minutes. Classy player, could see a pass. Um, yeah, wonderful footballer. 
He almost died on the football pitch. Sorry, Donadoni almost died on the football pitch. Yeah, um, uh, there was a, a, a. I'm just looking on his Wikipedia page here. Um, he um, during a European Cup game in uh, 1988 against Red Star Belgrade, he basically passed out on the field, and the uh, the Red Star Belgrade physio had to break his jaw to make um, to make way for oxygen to reach his lungs after he'd basically been poleaxed. Um, a Serbian team applying uh, some interesting <laughs> tactics. Yeah, who, who, whoever would have yeah. thought? Follow me, shocked. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a great era, though. You know, like you know, the Champions League with its sort of you know shiny bells and whistles, and you know, gating the elite into basically guaranteed positions every year has really taken away you know the fact that the european cup was genuinely uh, a knockout competition where big teams routinely went out in the very early stages and, and played each other it was complete lottery i don't think there was any seeding you know so no, you you could be playing you could be liverpool playing juventus in the first round of the european cup theoretically you know it was it was um a, a ruthless competition and that's why you see teams like star bucharest and red star belgrade and marseille um you know reach the latter stages benfica in the final you know you, you get this because of the fact that it's a pure knockout competition and it is something that the champions league has very much ruined in that sense and yeah i miss it forces, uh, one of the driving forces of the move was berlusconi as president of milan and he was complaining after seeing napoli with led by maradona as the reigning champions drawn in the first round against real madrid and i think he looked at that and said i don't want that happening to, to milan one day and so berlusconi and this wonderful team that we're talking about was actually one of the pressing forces towards the modernization of the uh, and the turn into the champions league it's one of those it's one of those things the uh you know this whole thing of you know threats of breakaway leagues and so on and so forth and and, and obviously the champions league kind of comes out of that we talked about how united had a lot of growing pains in that because it was you know a league format and and they kind of struggled with the foreigner rule and and all of those things and it's kind of interesting that um you know milan win two european cups under the old system uh, then they're going to win the Champions League in in '94, um, and then of course they, uh, you know, they go and win um, again under Ancelotti. So it's 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 interesting that they kind of were successful in in both formats. Liverpool, of course, and Bayern Munich and Real Madrid have, have been successful in in, in both formats. Um, but it is something where, let's say, if you are, I don't know, a Leicester City, right? Leicester City or a Blackburn Rovers, like a team that that wins. Um, their domestic league um, and goes into Europe without much experience of it. You know, you'd have backed those two teams in a straight knockout competition in a in the the, the sort of the format a Champions League is in. That's when you know teams like that find it very very tough. You know, Klopp's Dortmund found the Champions League very very tough. Um, I yeah, think it's my, an, it's an my my own team is a great example of that. If you look at that Aston Villa team of 1982, there's no way playing with 16 players or whatever it is they use that year that they could get through a Champions League style format. No way at all. 
They just didn't have the depth. A wonderful 11, 12 players. But they would have get to... I mean, they, to be honest, they probably should have lost to Bayern Munich anyway if you've actually watched that game. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it, they, they wouldn't have had a chance if they'd had to play home and away against three of the biggest sides. Or, well, depend on draw, potentially, three of the biggest sides in Europe just to get out of the first round. Do we feel like... That we're- we're missing something now by with that change. I mean, it's very rare that, particularly in the group stage of the Champions League, that we see anyone's first first choice team. Like the, it's very. Rare. I, I watched the other day, uh, Real Madrid take on Shakhtar Donetsk, and the Real it's, it's Real Madrid reserved, and they almost well they they do they they lose. Well, and it was not only Real Madrid reserve, it was basically Real Madrid reserves versus Shakhtar reserves, I'm led to believe. Yeah, Shakhtar were absolutely decimated by COVID. Um, So I think they only had sort of three or four first teamers and they, and Real Madrid are just, they're nowhere. I think the point is, is they're not, there's a lot of these clubs who, who see, particularly the early stages of the Champions League as a, it's, it's getting to League Cup levels where they they kind of know over the course of six games they're going to pick up enough points to to get through. They don't have to kind of throw everything into it. Whereas you know to take a Leicester or something like Leicester. I mean, although from memory, I don't think Leicester always played their first choice team in the Champions League. Um, there are teams in the past who have who have wanted to do the best they can in the Champions League, played their best team in midweek, and they ended up not playing their best team at the weekend and, and struggling. Newcastle were one of those teams, actually. Um, do we think that the, the, the format of the Champions League, it, it, I think it's kind of, it means that you can't really get those, those runs, those unexpected runs that you, that you used to get. I mean, I guess Ajax is the is the sort of the outlier, isn't it? Because the you know obviously they got that semi final against the, mm. the mad semi final against Spurs. You could even consider Spurs to be a bit of an outlier there, to be honest. Um, and Leeds, I mean, obviously, because you could look at that Leeds team we talked about getting to the semi final as well. So you, you I mean, do aren't these have teams that make level? it, but I'm just going to say, aren't those a different level though from the Red Star Belgrades of the past? I mean, that yeah. is... You know, we're not talking the same level of run. Like, um, Leicester City making a run to the semi-final would be not too far off Red Star, whereas Spurs that, they weren't far different. off though. I guess that Monaco team, the 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 team with a very young Mbappe and um, and Bernardo Silva, you know, that that knocked out City and they went to the semi-finals of the Champions League. I know Monaco have got a you know you know have got some pedigree in European football, but. But you know, I mean, they don't have any fans. You know what I mean? If you go, like, you know, go sort of ever watch a, a game at Monaco Stadium, it's like literally empty. Um, it, so I guess it's it's not impossible. I mean, you know, I mean, Red Bull Salzburg, for example, and, and again, I know they're backed by a massive, like, massive corporation, and they're essentially a feeder club to, you know, uh, to the other Red Bull club, etc. But but you know, they often punch way above their weight in European football but I, I, yeah I mean I totally missed the the European Cup as it was I think you know to to uh to young you know to young people it might sound a bit mad because I, I know that like when I talk to you know kids I teach at school and stuff they're always like oh yeah Champions League it's the best competition and you know it's, it's difficult to explain to them why the European Cup kind of why it meant so much more um 
you know and i guess like a young person might look at that and be like what celtic won it and and think oh that must mean it's stupid but obviously we're talking about a time before you know before money meant that it was quite a bit of a closed shop at the top of the game pretty much every innovation in european football has made it worse i think i mean i I, that might make me sound like a hopeless nostalgist but i i will maintain that the era where you had the european cup the cup winners cup and the uefa cup was so far in advance and so much definitely absolutely champions league and you and the europa league is a shambles of a competition oh yeah so i mean we have we have got it's a prawn, prawn sandwich tournament, isn't it? Let, let's face it, you know, there's a yes. lot of money involved in it. You know, it, it gets all the best teams in there. You know, there's not much hope of a, you know, a big underdog story. I guess, you know, you, you could say Porto were, were, were probably one that, that went a lot further than that they they should when they when they won it, Mourinho's Porto. Yeah. But um yeah i mean it, it, it's just very it, it, it's what football has become and you know that's all happened over that period and it, it, it's bizarre that when you think about it, it we are talking about this period where this milan team uh, uh, were, were experiencing their biggest success you know they started in, in that old era of football and you know the end of that dynasty it, it was a different game I think the other thing is, is that because there was only one team from each country that, that would make it, it made it a much more exclusive thing. And actually becoming the champion, winning the title was that much more important. These mm. days, you just have to finish fourth. So, well, thinking, yeah. so, so a team like Arsenal, they don't feel like they have to do anything massively different because as long as they're... they're they're one of the top four teams they'll still get they'll still get paid well yeah exactly don't get me started on that you know (laughs) and and that was one of my biggest my biggest problems with with my team over you know i'm kind of relieved that that we're out of that because it was just such a rinse repeat we were never going to win that tournament we were never going to win the league you know but it didn't matter you know and that's where you get people not caring rest your players it's more important you finish fourth in the league than you get to the next stage of the your, uh, champions league because you need your money the next year and arguably it, it makes those leagues much more insipid because there's you have this monopoly on the top four and you know i mean they have they have it into well they, they had it to an extent in italy they had it to an extent in spain um, Germany's certainly the top, the top two or three is very much a closed shop. It's not that exciting, and it's you know this season in in, in England it's kind of been shaken up early on because all of a sudden Liverpool, well Liverpool are up there now, Man City you know, and Man United are nowhere. Chelsea are starting consistently, so you've got a couple of teams who think, well, actually that'd be great if Everton or Villa kind of made a bit of a charge for it. Um, but it just, it, there's just sort of this inevitability about it, which makes the league a much worse product. And I think ever since the English teams got, is it four guaranteed places? Mm, so I think yeah, three four. of them get guaranteed places and one of them has to qualify now. Um, but the size of playing qualifiers make of, that a guaranteed place effectively, doesn't it, really? Usually. It's yeah, very embarrassing sure. for any team that doesn't get through it, isn't it? And I, and I think the thing is, is that 
um, when it when the Champions League started, we talked about we talked those early struggles of United and the Champions League in the the mid nineties, and actually then um, it did start out as just champions and reigning and then the reigning champions of the competition and then it goes to two teams from the big leagues and then three and inevitably goes to four and that means that a team with the historical dimension of of Ajax I mean I forget how many European Cups Ajax have won four or five are having to qualify you know as winners of the Eredivisie you're not guaranteed a place it's a joke, isn't it? It's absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, you've got a team like, you know, teams like Porto and Benfica, again, like Sporting Lisbon, teams with huge history and pedigree who are, you know, put in, in that situation where it's it's very, very difficult for them. You know, Red Star Belgrade last season were in Spurs' um, group in the Champions League. And I think we I think we spanked them in the, the away leg. Um and it's it's it was such a sort of I, I you know I've been watching the game feeling that little bit of sadness because I remembered you know the um, ninety and ninety one Red Star Belgrade teams and they were great teams you know like people like Robert Prozanecki played in those teams. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in because I've just realised it's been about ten minutes since we've actually mentioned Milan and this is meant to be a Milan podcast we like tangents I think this is the thing there's so much to say about this Milan team and we've kind of got lost in the weeds of all that's wrong with UEFA and that will take us a long long time to put right but I think I think it, it's 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 a valid point and it does sort of bring us back it is it's abso- absolutely it's, a valid point because it you know this, this was a time when this was the best team in Europe and it was facing the other best teams in Europe and not, you know, one of the best 30. Um, and, Capello, and Capello's team actually, of course, does win one of the first Champions Leagues. I'm trying to think, It's the is it the second or the third one branded the Champions League? Like, so Marseille win it in 90... Three. Is that the first one that's the Champions League? I think so, yeah. And then, so this is the second one. So, so yeah, so, uh, and of course, uh, Milan actually lost that final. And, and famously, uh, there are some some thoughts about whether Marseille bribed their way to, <laughs> to that final win. Because Desai, interestingly, is a linchpin of that Marseille team. And then he goes to Milan and he wins it at Milan the next year and scores in the final. Um, An Italian yes. team accusing another team of bribery is... Well, anyone who supports Leeds reading this will be off their seat. Marseille, uh, Marseille got banned uh, from Europe, I think, in the aftermath of of uh, some other things that happened. So, you know, that Marseille team, which was a great, great team, actually, they're sort of Marseille 1990 to, to, to 93 is a real, that's a real cult team. Um, but there was a lot of dodgy stuff that happened uh, behind closed doors there, um, which, is, which is which sort of interesting, interesting discussion in itself. Something tells me there are a lot of um, bunga bunga parties at Set Blatter attended at this time. I mean, like, yeah, it's 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 completely uh, I, crazy. I'd imagine Berlusconi hosted most of them. Well, that was yeah, that was kind almost of the all, yeah. point. I'm surprised yeah. that Maradona didn't end up at uh, Milan ba- simply based on that. 
Um, oh, well. he wouldn't. He would not have fit at Milan. He, 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 someone with that amount of a god complex, needed to be in somewhere like Napoli, where they would forgive him anything. And by the point we're talking about, he's already slipped out the back door of of Italy and got and gone back to Argentina, where he'll be found a few weeks later in a. Um, I forget where it was, but the, the, some sort of police raid um, where, where he's found in a stupor um, on the floor. And there's almost a riot when they try and arrest him. Uh, people around the the flat where they find him just to say, no, let him go. Because, again, Argentina and Naples have one thing in common, which is they'll forgive Maradona anything. There's one player that I want to mention that we haven't mentioned yet because the the the, the prime years of the Saki era, one thing Milan didn't really have was a goalkeeper and one of his last acts his last big signing really in many ways was Sebastiano Rossi who will go on to be the Milan goalkeeper not only through the Capello years but for the rest of the decade and yet this is a goalkeeper that was never actually capped by Italy which is quite interesting Sebastiano Rossi any any recollections there's a big well I mean Italy has huge amounts of talent goalkeeping wise um, in fact, I think, you know, the Italian goalkeeper jersey just constantly switches around in the 90s until, you know, until Buffon comes along at the very end of the 90s. And then it's basically Buffon's shirt. It was mainly Pagliuca in the Forever. early 90s. That, that's yeah. what kept him out. So, well, Pagliuca and then... Um, Zanga. Francesco, yeah, Probably Zanga before as well, yeah. Fra- yeah, Francesco Toldo as well. Um, well, so... Not that many of these guys were in for long. They were often kind of in for a cap or two. And that's what Rossi was. He was in the squads. He just never actually got a cap. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, he was kind of, yeah, he was, a, he was a good keeper. But in the same way that, you know, I mean, lots of good. Did we Premier talk League... Nigel Martin? Was, yeah. Lot, lots of Premier League keepers that, that were very good keepers that sort of, you know, they just happened to play at the same time as David Seaman. Um, so, yeah, he was a. Uh, he was he was solid basically wasn't he and um is that Milan... what they need when you think about the bat line that they had is all they needed a good solid keeper who could keep the shirt for 10 years yeah well, yeah i think i think so yeah well, it's, um, it's confidence isn't it you know that, that defense you you know if if they've got their trust in their goal it's like that with anyone with the goalkeeper if you've got trust in him it's a big thing, you know, and it's the same with defenders as well. And you'd find that a, a lot during that era in lots of countries where the, these players weren't necessarily, you know, caps for their country. You know, look at someone, Steve Bruce, for example, you know, how, how solid a defender he'd be for, for, for United. But, you know, he, he was nowhere on, on the on the horizon for England, you know, but it, it's, you're, t- you're talking in an era where the game's not full of foreign players in each country as well, you know, so you've got 20 teams or whatever it is, each of them have got two Italian centre-backs. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's there's a lot more competition at international level at this place in countries like England, in Italy. In. So what what sets, I mean, we, we you said there's a, there's a lot of really strong, Italian defenders and goalkeepers around Serie A. What sets apart AC Milan from everybody else? I mean, under under Capello, they, well, I mean, what Capello did was he kept a, a lot of what Saki um, did, but Capello was, I think, a lot more naturally Italian than um, than Saki was. So Capello, as a player, 
was a very classy midfielder. Like um, I remember, you know, sort of uh, looking up some of Capello's playing highlights, funny enough, um, down a, a wormhole not all that long ago. And he was a super, super player. Went to the 1970 um, and 74 World Cups, was a very good player for Italy. Um, and he was actually seen when he was appointed uh, when Saki went to coach Italy and Berlusconi gave the job to Capello and the Milan fans weren't happy um, because they saw him as a sort of, uh, as a, a likely yes man. Um, and they weren't very excited by it because at this point Capello hadn't had any, any hadn't sort he, of, you know, major coaching role that... Um, hadn't he been Milan coach for a short spell before Saki? And, and that's why they, they didn't want him. They, yeah, well, yeah, they saw him as a sort of, yeah, as like a sort of yes man, basically. Like, And, you know, he then builds this team that go the whole of 91, 92 unbeaten. Um, you know, they, uh, you know, they win, uh, I think they win 22 and draw 12. Um, and, I mean, very simple pretty similar numbers to the Arsenal Invincibles that isn't it um and yeah they 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 go the whole season unbeaten they they win the Scudetto it's Van Basten's best goal scoring season I think um and so he was that I think he conceded 15 goals that year um (laughs) which is just which is just mad in itself so I think you know they if anything under Capello their defense got even tighter um they didn't score as many under Capello but they uh they they certainly were, were were very very difficult to be and of course we you know Capello would would go on to yeah, also win the title at Roma he'd go to Real Madrid and be very successful at Real Madrid um you know probably the least said about his England tenure the, the better but uh well you know, he, he had he had the best record in qualifiers of any England manager ever and that's exactly. a, that's a that's about as good as it gets I think you can say for his England career I mean yeah, I think the thing was is that you know I mean, to be honest, let's be fair. The golden generation they ruined every, every. No, they ruined every manager they <laughs> they got. Really, didn't they? So, I, I, think, I think they I were, they were past it by uh, by the time yeah. Capello came. In, to be fair, but, the, the golden generation should have won a trophy for Sven. By the time Fabio came around, it was yeah. The the shine was off the apple. Yeah, I mean, but you know, they ruined Sven. They ruined McLaren. They ruined. Capello and they ruined Hodgson it was like you know golden generation at a certain point you have to not blame the manager I think and just look at the players um because yeah, true. <laughs> like it was it, it's like if you look at all of those coaches they were all tremendously successful maybe bar McLaren uh elsewhere and um uh, yeah but anyway we'll do golden generation another time um but yeah the player so, that I, came through in that first season for Capello at uh, Milan for me the one that stands out of that year was um it's the year that Albertini starts to make his his way into the squad and he'll be around for quite a while very much so very much so he also brought in um Savicevic and Boban who are two of my very favorite footballers um yeah you know, they're both right up your alley those two. Oh, well, I mean the, I watched again the 94 European Cup final uh, goals and the Savicevic chip Oh. Over Super Serata is just out, absolutely outrageous to this day. Um, all the goals in that in that '94 final are just tremendous. And bear in mind that they thrashed the great Johan Cruyff golden Barcelona team. You know, Stoichkov and Romario, Koeman, 
Guardiola. Guardiola. The beast. Uh, you know, it was that was a proper team, and that team had, had absolutely mangled Man United in the group stages, like smashed them four 0 at the New Camp. Um, and we talked about how good that '94 United side were, and and uh, you know Barcelona took them to the cleaners, and Milan actually were quite severe underdogs for that final, um, yeah. and they because obviously you know they'd lost the three Dutchmen by this point. And um, they had a, you know, Brazy suspended. Brazy was suspended. Young Desai. Van Basten's got no knee left, so he's not playing. Um, does that fight? Doesn't retire at 50 till 95, but everyone kind of knew it was over. Um, the big... had already gone, hadn't he? Hullet had been shipped out the oh. season before to. Hullet Yeah, Hullet Sampdoria. Sam I mean, that season that Boban, Savicevic, and, and Iranio also comes in that year, the, the Milan big signings don't really pay off i mean uh papa I mean, you mentioned earlier on didn't really become what he, sh- he should have done and he's not even the headline because they got into a bidding war with juventus for Gianluigi lontany yeah, yeah. Lentini. and it's just a complete waste of money and we well, crashes his um lamborghini uh <laughs> it's it, a very famous story where basically he he crashed his car um and completely like destroyed his leg and he made it yeah it made a comeback but was was never the same player because essentially they picked him up because he was that good for torino um surprised you know a sort of you know torino were a great great team in the 30s and 40s but you know very much been the 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 secondary turin team since that famous plane crash where their whole team died like you know the, the famous um Il Grande Torino and the whole team basically died and the manager died in a plane crash uh, in the late 40s. And uh, since then, Juventus had been the, the, the team in Turin, whereas before then it had been Torino. And um, But yeah, Torino in that season had made a, a real sort of, you know, surprise run, kind of challenging Milan quite a lot. And so therefore Milan were like, well, we'll go and pick up their best young player. And uh, it didn't really work out for them. But Savinovic and Boban with two sides that very much did pay off, and um, they are both very, very good for Milan for a long time. And I believe, like both of them, have recently worked in the uh, the you know they've been directors at, at Milan recently, um, so they're very much involved with the club still. Um, I mean, but we, yeah, if, two lovely footballers. I mean, if we're gonna like kind of talk about uh, Lentini for a minute, um, that's a year or so after he moves to Milan. Is that is this crash? Do you think it's the downside of the the kind of Berlusconi effect where he has that to go out and buy young players um, like he did with Van Basten? This, there's a, there's a parallel that I can see. With, uh, obviously, Van Basten made it work, but you've got this huge figure and it's hard now not to see Berlusconi as the prime minister of Italy. But he's clearly this larger than life figure, even from yeah. the from the earliest days. Do you think there's this that's the downside of going out and buying all these young players and bringing them in for big money? Because Lentini breaks the world transfer record, I, th- I think, or at least the Italian mm, yeah, transfer he record. He did. He was the world uh, and even, most before, player. even before the crash, he's not the player he was. So do you think this, I mean, just to bring in what we were talking about with Ronaldo a couple of weeks ago, do you think that's the downside? You know, you kind of, a man like Berlusconi putting all that kind of pressure on these young kids. Berlusconi was like, if you imagine Rupert Murdoch owning a Premier League football team, like that's, you know, Berlusconi was a, you know, media mogul in Italy, wasn't he? He owned the major TV station in Italy. Um, yeah, media and, sense. And he was, you know, 
well known as the as a powerful corrupt figure. So yeah, imagine like Murdoch owning. I mean, what would be the equivalent for for Milan in England? It probably like probably Arsenal actually. Like you know, like, imagine like owning a, a club of that size and, and having that amount of power. Um, yeah. So it was quite a dark. Thing, I was just really. thinking about when the Murdochs actually tried to buy Man United. It's, that's the club, probably the closest parallel in some senses, because it nearly happened. Yeah, I mean, Robert Maxwell owned Derby County, didn't he? Um, Did he? Yeah. yeah. I, I know he owned Oxford. I didn't know he owned Derby. <laughs> yeah, that was... And then there was... that Because there was the whole thing where, like, Brian Clough would then go on TV as a former... Obviously, a former Derby manager and would pan you know, Maxwell and Murdoch on TV. There's a very famous interview where he, he does that. But again, that's another tangent. But yeah, Berlusconi's money, interestingly, um, I mean, I guess it's difficult to say really because so many other Italian sides also were very rich. You think about the fact that, you know, you know, Juve are basically, um, you know, owned by the, you know, the family that own Fiat and stuff like that. So it's not as if the money... Agnelli's. Yeah, and it's not as if the as if there aren't any other clubs in Italy yeah. that were spending the same I amount. Say that. I think it's I think it's the pressure on any young footballer with a high price tag. I don't think you know it's really you know anything to do with Berlusconi. If you, if a big club signs a young player for a lot of money, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him. You I know, and it's... some can crack under that. I think the other thing is he's he's coming in to fill some really big shoes. You know, you, you think of the players who have come before him um, and he's, he won't have been the first and he certainly won't be the last player who's, who's come in to sort of replace a, a huge name and it's not really paid off. I mean, you think of the, the you know, the, the players he'd have come in to replace. I mean, you've got attacking talents like Van Basten and Hewlett to replace and suddenly he spent 15 million quid on on the next big thing. And yeah, it's, it's a huge amount of responsibility and pressure. And sometimes just, it works I'm out. I just think it might it be you know. slightly different because, I mean, in the case of Berlusconi, this is a guy that um, sacked a manager on air, basically, even though he wasn't the chairman. As the president of Milan, he could say that display wasn't good enough and, you know, he's going to get his walking papers. And a couple of hours later, the manager is picking up the phone and hearing this kind of news. And he's uh, all through his his career as, as the uh, CEO or president or whatever his actual role at Milan was. I don't he think said, that has that has an impact. I think that, that that puts pressure on the manager. I'm not sure that necessarily puts pressure on the players. With Lontini, I would say that he was just... It's a bit like we, what we talked about with Danielson. You know, he was a promising player, but he wasn't worth that much. You know, like Juve, when Juve bought Baggio, um, there were people that were like, because, I mean, when he was at Fiorentina, Baggio had had some pretty uh, dreadful um, injuries and people thought Juventus paying that money for him was a, was a massive, massive risk. And obviously Baggio was, was then brilliant. Um, and it worked out for Juve. Um, but it doesn't always, you know, when you spend a lot of money on a young player, sometimes it, 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 it doesn't pan out. Um, and we've seen that, we've seen that in every European league, uh, you know, it's kind of, you can think you're getting, uh, you're getting the next big thing, but it, it, it's never ever guaranteed. I mean, I just can't shake that image of, you know, Berlusconi saying to the press, you know, he'll, 
invite the latest big thing at Milan round to the house and tell the press that he feels like he's a father figure to them and all those interviews that you've seen. I find it quite hard to shake that, especially when whenever someone fails. And maybe I'm reading too much in. I, you know, I don't know. But it's something that I don't think you can ever completely separate from this Milan side is just how looming a presence th- that kind of chairman is, especially when it's someone like Berlusconi, who clearly knows how to work people. I mean, he wouldn't have been as successful a politician as he was if he didn't know how to use his charisma, for the lack oh, of a better. Uh, no doubt. And, you know, it's a bit like... Um... Every time there was a Chelsea manager who Drogba and, uh, you know, and Terry and Lampard and uh, Czech, right? Every time there was a, a, a an Ashley Cole, every time there's a manager they didn't like, they just went to Papa Abramovich and told him to sack him. <laughs> yeah, so it's, 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 uh, yeah, you, you're not wrong, right? There's, there's definitely, when you have a celebrity chairman, um, there's always a few things that, that go alongside with it i think the thing about hullet van basten and right card is in different ways they kind of matched what what milan were trying to be you know hullet was a bit of a uh, charismatic party boy you know milan's obviously a very cosmopolitan and fashionable city and hullet fit right into that whereas van basten was very quiet and reserved and you know very professional which was you know again the, the seen as the italian way and right car was somewhere in the middle um and all three of them spoke perfect italian and they just kind of fit into um they just fit into that city and that's the thing is that when you sign foreign players like that what you're looking for is a a player that fits the club and we talked about you know maradona just fit napoli right there was just something about him there that worked um you know in, in in a similar way i think when milan take uh kaka you know in the beginning of the 2000s like kaka just lit milan up and just was a part of milan and when he went to real madrid it wasn't the same he was he he just very much seemed to fit with 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 what milan were and so yeah i just think sometimes you you just have players that that, that work out because they're the exact thing you need at that time a couple of things just to just to talk about before we we start to wrap up. We've we talked a lot about the uh, the Italian core of this team, and we've, we've we've spoken a little bit about the the Dutch influence. But I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Marco van Basten, who mm. the uh, and I'm surprised we ha- he hasn't come up more um, during this little chat because he genuinely looks like the best number nine I've ever seen just based on some of the highlights videos I've seen. He, the guy could do everything. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Absolutely. He was, I mean, all three of those Dutch players were, were you know, growing up, I mean, f- for me and, and Maz, like at our, at our age, you know, when we were getting into football, those were the best players in the world. Um, obviously, you had Maradona um, and you had Mateus, and then you had those three. And, and those were the players that everybody everybody knew about and everyone wanted to be um, mm. in the playgrounds. And obviously not mm. only do they win, not only do they win, you know, the Scudetto with Milan and they, they, they win the first European cup in 89, but they win Euro 88, the three Dutchmen win Euro 88 and Van Basten. And they got totally one, two, one, two, three in the Ballon d'Or as well. Makes Van totally Basten, Hulliet, Rijkaard in 88. 
Yeah, and then the year after, Van Basten and Rijkaard make it in one and three again, and the only difference is Baracis in there rather than Hullet. Uh, and, and, you know, like, Van Basten, that tournament in that year of ACA, um, you know, makes Tony Adams into his, per- a very young Tony Adams, bless him, into his personal bitch in a game where Holland thrashing them 3-0 with a Van, da- Van Basten hat-trick. I think all three goals, Tony Adams is made to look like a complete... And, and Adams doesn't recover from that. At international level, I don't think he ever recovers from it. But, you know, he, he, he said he, he just struggled with England for so long after that. He was very good by 96. By the time he yeah. quit, he, he yeah. got back to being good, to be fair. But it, but it took six or seven years. Um, and, yeah. and, and, you know, and obviously then the, the, the volley in the final against the Soviet Union is... Um, you know, still one of the most replayed goals ever. And there's a great story about that, um, that Van Basten basically was knackered uh, and he saw Muren cross it and he was like, I can't be able to run this into the corner flag. I'm just going to hit it. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously I, got... worked out quite well. <laughs> I mean, I've got something I wanted to bring up ever since we decided we were going to talk about this team. And I've got to apologize to to Neil in advance because I know um, you hate these kind of conversations from the previous things about football that we've had. But there is this lazy kind of narrative over um, greatest footballers in the world that says for from sometime in the early 80s until sometime in the early 90s, the greatest player in the world is Maradona. And I look at that side and I look at Van Basten winning back-to-back Ballon d'Ors. I look at everything he did. I look at what he could do that Maradona couldn't. And there's a part of me that says, not just the best number nine, that for a couple of years there in the late 1980s, Marco Van Basten was the best player in the world. So with full apologies to Neil for going to this kind of conversation that can never be resolved. What do you think of the idea that Van Basten is the best player in the world for at least a year or two? I mean, he's play, he's playing in a league where the, the, the is the full of the best defenders in the world, and as as Neil alluded to at the st- the start of this, most strikers are if they're t- the top of the scoring charts in Italy, they're scoring eleven or twelve goals, and suddenly Van Basten's it there, smashing twenty four goals in a season. So there's got to be something in that. He's got one of the best goal scoring in terms of like you know um, games played to goals ratio um you know obviously i know obviously ronaldo and messi have just made the whole thing ridiculous haven't they with the, with, with their records but it, they're it's, not playing the same game no and there's, there's, there's a I mean, weird kind not. of there's a weird kind of doping almost that work with messi and ronaldo given everything that happened at madrid and uh, barca in that period they're playing yeah, no, actually, I, I, that was good that, that was going to be my yeah the the rest of the point was going to be obviously it, it when you look at their records it kind of it looks almost you know almost kind of ridiculous but but van basten playing in an era of the very best defenders he's got a, a goal scoring um record which is as good as anybody's but i think what's and what you got to remember with van basten is he probably didn't even hit his prime you know right. he probably didn't hit his prime 28 no, he's done strong. you know it's uh, he, uh, uh, different game then he probably wouldn't have lasted that long even without the the big injuries but you know if he'd gone to 32 four more good years you know w- with that with that intelligence that he's got you know Marco he's playing in the 1994 world cup side yeah. with Bergkamp 
But I think, you know, what's interesting about Bambasta is that even in his last season, I think he only plays 11 games before he, he finally gets that, that, that last injury that, that sort of finishes it for him. And one of the very last things he does is this ridiculous overhead kick against Gothenburg in the, um, in, in the European Cup, which is, again, like a completely absurd goal. Um, but I think what, what's, what's interesting as well is that um, certainly when I was at, uh, at primary school, the debate was Maradona or Hullet. That was that was the uh, the, the the playground debate, and obviously mm. most English kids leaned towards Hullet because there was a sort of folk dislike of Maradona based on '86 and what their dads had told them about what Maradona did in '86. Mm. So a lot of people would say at the time, um, because, particularly because you know Hullet scored the first goal of that Euro '88 final with that bullet header. Um, and, and that was a, for a lot of people a moment. The moment when Hullet scored that header, that he became, uh, you know, the, the, the best player in the world. So yeah, you know, that was the debate. I think when I was sort of eight years old, was 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 sort of Maradona or Hullet. Um, I mean, you'd almost say, based on just pure being a, literally. I mean, Hullet's ability to play anywhere from centre forward to centre back is, you know. I mean, it's, it's a very Dutch thing to be able to do, but he did it. He did everything better than most people. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's it. Van Basten was a versatile player, but, you know, he was always a number nine. You know, it, he, he could play variations of that number nine role, you know, but, you know, Hullet was absolutely everything. There was nothing he couldn't do. And, it, and you know, it, it almost goes back to what we were saying about, you know, the charms of the Ronaldo uh, you know the R nine over the the Messies and and stuff like that. You know the charisma that Van ba- that um, that Hullet brought brought to the field as well will, will never go amiss. And you know the only Dutch side ever to win anything. And given their history, you know we're losing consecutive World Cup finals in seventy four and seventy eight, both of which when they were the they were the, the best side in the tournament by a mile lost them both um you know then they don't get to a international tournament again until 88 um and then they win it and then of course you know they they go out early in 1990 uh they go out early in 92 um 94 they go out to brazil in the quarterfinals you know 96 they get smashed by england of all people um you know and then 98 is the, you know, is, is the year when they kind of you know recover um, but, you know, considering how underachieving they have been as a nation, given the talent that they've had, that Dutch team that won it in 88, you know, you, you've got to look at that as a huge plus point for Hullet van Basten Rijkaard because they were the core of the, the only Dutch teams to win an international tournament. Yeah, they did what an insane amount of, of talented players you know, have failed to do from your Cruyffs and Neeskins to your, you know, to your... Uh, Robinson, yeah. <laughs> your, your Ajax class of, of 95 and, you know, even Nigel de Jong didn't quite manage it. <laughs> he almost to, did. He, he, took some, to, uh, yeah, he took a couple of people down with him. Yeah, he managed to basically murder Xavi on the field, if I recall. <laughs> last, last question before we... We, we wrap this up, boys. Is this the best club side ever? 
yes. For me, yes. I mean, Liverpool He's in the m- 70s, I suppose. Like, I've watched a lot of videos of Liverpool in the 70s and they were, like, incredible. Uh, but for me, this is the best team. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly my favourite. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't around to witness much of uh, Di Stefano's Real and, and, and teams like that, which were which were obviously all conquering. But, you know, but when, when I look at, you know, the Barcelona of, of Messi, Xavi and Iniesta, that, that's quite something as well. But, I mean, it, it's the whole idea of you've got this greatest defence in, in, in the history of the game with, you know, individually two, two of the very, very best defenders to ever play play the game. You know, maybe maybe the two very best, depending on who you ask. And then you superimpose this total football of of Hulit, Van Basten and Rijkaard over that defence. It's just, you know, you could talk about them for hours and hours and hours. And, you know, it, it, it's a legacy that carried on, you know, for quite some years afterwards, even when these players were gone. Well, obviously, Maldini stayed for quite a long time, but... Um, you know, it, it just kept going for a, for a very long time. And it's only, as Mav said, over the last 10 years or so that that they, they've fallen away again. I mean, are we talking about the, when we say are they the best side ever, are we talking about the Saki team with the three Dutchmen or are we talking about the the side where the Dutchmen have gone and they trounce Barcelona 4-0 um, in the final? You tell I mean, probably... The, prob- the Saki team is 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 the is is the great one. I mean, obviously mm. Capello did a great job with what he had, but you wouldn't say that Masaro and Co. You know, were the equal. I mean, Desai, I guess, is a player that yeah. had he been a little bit older, might have been what would have been great in that first team as well. I mean, oh. I, the, the, the thing is, the I, I think great, but they're not box office to quote uh, yeah. to quote yourself, Pete. There from earlier, <laughs> yeah. No, and that's certainly what I think Hullet above all was. Um, he, you know, that's why Chelsea went mental, even though he was going to play as a sweeper. Uh, but I mean, the, the thing to remember is that this side doesn't end in '94. I mean, that is for me the marquee performance as a one-off is is that demolition of Barcelona. But I mean, the year after that, they go to the Champions League final against Ajax. The year after that, they've got Roberto Baggio and George Weah playing up front, and they win the Scudetto again. You know, this side keeps going as long as capello is there this is still a great side and it's the year after that things fall apart and that's for me is then the end of the team because in so many ways it's when baracy decides to retire and this is the guy that's been there throughout it all from 1978 from the build-up he's captain the side and it's when capello goes to milan and sorry not to milan he's he's at milan he's got when capello goes to madrid that's what i meant to say and baracy says you know what this is time to to hang it up that for me is the end of one team and the beginning of something else i think the just looking at sort of the squads over those couple of years i mean suddenly there's a there's a huge amount of turnover in a short space of time um and there's some really recognizable names that come in then out of the squad and a lot of them end up in the premier league i mean uh viera um is uh, is at Milan before he goes to Arsenal. Di Canio comes to he goes to Celtic from Milan. There's there's yeah. all sorts of players who just sort of, they couldn't get in. Really, they, they couldn't yeah. get in. For Big Richard, squads, Connors, you know, it's the new Bonchini game. Starts at Milan. 
Um, so yeah, yeah. There's, there's players who end up in the Premier League, and I and I guess Gullis is the he's one who goes from Serie A to the Premier League, and uh, you know this sort of the, the end of this great Milan side coincides with becoming the destination league, I suppose, for a lot of these, these great European players. It's quite interesting because Serie A in the in the nineties, you know, you start to see players obviously like Zola um, comes to the Premier League because he 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 fell out um, he fell out with the management of Parma, um, and, and he's obviously the first big one here. Hullet goes to Chelsea, um, and you, you you start to see it start That's coming eventually. Yeah, it starts to so you you start to see it kind of go the other the other way. Um, but obviously, what happens to this Milan side eventually is Juve get their act together. Um, and the Juve of of Zidane um, and Del Piero um, and uh, and uh, Deschamps and so on, you know that great Juve side. They then you know, they had Alan Boxic as well, and and they they start going on a on a bit of a tear. And then you know by sort of ninety nine two thousand, you know Lazio and Roma have both spent a lot of money. Capello's at Roma, Ericsson's at Lazio. Um, and they win a Scudetto each, so it starts to get um, a, a bit more a bit more competitive. And uh, Inter obviously go out and buy Ronaldo um, and Zamorano, and, and so you've 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 got a lot of competition there. And so Milan don't have it quite so easy, and they don't really get back to being dominant again until Ancelotti takes over and they go and win. A couple more Champions Leagues under him. So, but yeah, so it's 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 a very interesting little run. But we can get to the rest of it another time. The Shevchenko team that kind of rebuild things. I suppose the exactly. only other, the only last thing to, to kind of say is that um, Saki, when he leaves Milan, he goes on to the Italian job, um, and you know they get to the final in 1994, but they got in the group stage in Euro '96, and that became the big black mark on his coaching CV. So as the Milan team is breaking up, the manager is being somewhat discredited. I remember all the, the jokes about Saki in 1996, which seems, looking back on it now in the light of all that he'd given us, terribly unfair. Yeah, I mean, they just, uh, unfortunately, he was seen, I think, by the rest of the Italian fans as being only successful at Milan because the players that he'd had and um, he wasn't right for Italy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they obviously have this, even the 94 runs the final, they have some pretty dreadful results, including, you know, losing to the Republic uh, in the group stage. Um, uh, and they, wonderful they, game. Wonderful they, game. They, it was, yeah. They, they, they stumble, they kind of stumble to the final, really. Baggio pulls them out of a hole uh, against Nigeria, if I remember rightly, he scores two goals, and when they were they were one Sounds down, right? And he pulls them out of the fire. Um, so they they have a, a terrible old torrid time getting there. Uh, Saki doesn't trust Baggio very much, but he kind of saves his job, and he kind of begrudgingly plays Baggio, but he doesn't really want to. And there's all sorts of stuff. He's rotating his forwards all the time. He can't decide on if he wants to play, you know, Signori or, or or Zola or whoever else. So it's it's all it all becomes a bit of a a bit fraught for him but we should never forget what he did at Milan or as we said at the beginning just how much he's influenced modern football I think for me this has been a real education 
I hadn't really seen a lot of early early nineties Italian football full stop, but particularly this Milan side and even just just going back and watching a few of the YouTube videos. If you've never watched them before, go and check them out because there's there's some incredible players and, and it, this is this is a, a hugely impressive side. We're going to leave it there. Um, we'll briefly uh, talk about next week. Uh, we're going for a slight reduction in quality. Um, <laughs> Blasphemy. <laughs> um, although Ian Holloway would uh, would probably argue otherwise. Um, Who are these are, people? We are going to uh, uh, talk about Blackpool and their sole entry into the annals of the Premier League. Um, although this is ultimately a, a, a story of, of, of failure, um, I, I think it's it's quite a heartwarming tale to, to relive. So we'll uh, we'll spend a bit of time on that next week. Uh, as always, gents, thank you very much. And thank you for all for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>